0: Most non-Christians assume, most non-Christians assume that Christianity is like every other religion, just one of many faiths, and like other religions, the idea is keep the rules, get the blessing, okay? Keep the rules, get the blessing. It's really the way that human beings are wired, And that's why pretty much every religion focuses on behavior. Pray this prayer. Assume this posture. Light this candle. And we believe that, we do these things because we believe that our behavior has spiritual consequences. That the things that we do matter in some spiritual way. We believe that, we all believe that, because it is actually true. Our behavior does have spiritual consequences. Psalm 119 verse 1 says, just one example, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's pretty clear, right? Good behavior does lead to blessing. But this is where the similarity between Christianity and and other religions, this is where Christianity kind of takes a different path from there. Okay, The Bible is also clear from beginning to end that getting the blessing of that verse is not as simple as other religions make it sound. For instance, in Joshua 24, After the nation of Israel had taken possession of the promised land, the people of God renewed their vows that they would follow and obey God. But listen to what Joshua said to them. He said, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins you are not able and that is what separates the Christian faith from all the others it's that these two ideas are held in tension throughout the Bible until the cross of Jesus serve the Lord you're not able keep the law but you're not able So this morning, we're in the middle of Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul is going to continue his argument that the Jewish people have misunderstood the purpose of the law, and because they've misunderstood the purpose of the law, it is now hurting their understanding of the gospel. And he he believes, and I believe, that it's crucial for us to get this right as churches, so we're going to be verse 15, chapter 3. It starts this way. It says, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. He's saying, we don't add things to a contract after it has been signed, and God doesn't do that either. The original terms of the arrangement have not changed okay God has not changed and he has not changed the way he deals with his people incidentally this is why I'm not a dispensationalist because I don't believe the Bible is a story of God changing plans repeatedly it's the story of one plan being slowly revealed throughout scripture verse 16 Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So what Paul does here is he draws a line from Abraham to Jesus, and rightfully so. And we've talked about the covenant with Abraham before. Do you remember what happened? God instructed Abraham to basically cut up these animals and make this path of blood, right? And that's how people made official promises to each other thousands of years ago. This is the kind of thing they would do. And the idea was that two people would walk that path together as a statement. And what they're saying is, if I break this promise... You can do this to me. Okay, so like cross your heart, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. That's the idea here. Like if, I, if I break my side of this bargain, may this happen to me. Okay? But what happened with the covenant with Abraham is that instead of God and Abraham walking it together, God put Abraham to sleep. And God walked it alone. What did that communicate? It was God's way of saying, I will keep my side of this covenant, and when you break your side of it, I will die. And so that's what Jesus did, and Paul sees that connection between Abraham's covenant and Jesus. The work of Jesus was the object of even Abraham's faith. Verse 17. This is what I mean. It says, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So he's saying Moses came Hundreds of years after Abraham, and God did make a covenant with Moses, but it wasn't a completely new thing. Verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what's he saying? He's saying the plan did not change. The promise did not change change. God did not move the goalposts, right? He didn't first say, I'm going to interact with you on the basis of faith, but now we're going to add some more stuff at how I interact with you. And and that's how it's going to operate. Now, he didn't move the goalposts. God simply provided some new information. Why? In other words, what was the purpose of the law? That's what he answers in verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. This is a bit of a complicated thing in Greek, okay? do my best with it okay so what I think he's saying is this God gave us the law in order to reveal sin to help us better understand our need for Jesus whom Paul calls the offspring and so this argument as a whole is meant to show that God's covenant with Abraham was primary It came first, and his covenant with the people through Moses was secondary, which is why Paul says that it was put in place through angels by an intermediator. The intermediator would be Moses in that case, right? What he's saying is that God spoke directly to to Abraham, but he spoke to the Israelites through Moses. Verse 20... Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Okay, so in a typical contract negotiation, there would be two parties to the agreement, and a mediator would, re, would represent both parties. But God's covenants work differently because they are essentially unconditional at the end of it, and especially unilateral, okay? So there weren't God and humans coming up with an agreement. God was telling us what the agreement was because he's God. And so in all of this together, Paul is defending the idea that God's covenant with Abraham was, was more significant in some ways and, and foundational to the entire covenant of grace and that God has not changed that plan. But he knows how this sounds. And so Paul anticipates an objection that he was probably getting from many of the Jews who were probably asking him, if the Mosaic Covenant then contradicted the covenant with Abraham. Because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like he's saying that God contradicted himself. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So is is Moses against Abraham? Certainly not. Paul says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So in other words, Paul says, how you answer that question depends on the purpose of the law. If God provided the law as a way to be saved, then it definitely contradicted his promise with Abraham. But Paul argues that that was never the law's purpose. Again, why I'm not a dispensationalist. Okay? Verse 22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I'm going to be honest with you. You showed up this morning. Thank you for being here. This might be the most complicated idea for me to try to communicate in the entire letter to Galatians, okay? I'm going to do my best. Bear with me. Paul calls the law, Scripture, to reinforce his belief that God provided the law and that the law is good. So Paul, he's not dogging the law, and we're going to talk about why that's the case in a moment. But why did God give us a law? He says very clearly, because the law imprisoned everything under sin. What in the world does that mean? Okay, I'm going to try to illustrate it for you. I want you to imagine that you were born in a prison. And all you've ever known your entire life was the inside of that prison. All you've ever seen is bars and cement. And you get the same meals every day, right? Bland, simple food. Gruel for lunch, gruel for dinner, right? Just every day, same food, you wear the same clothes, the same prison outfit every day and that's all you know and it's all you remember because it's all you've ever known. Can you imagine that? How could someone convince you that the world is better outside of that prison? They could describe it to you, they could show you pictures, they could sneak in better food, but all of those things, though helpful, would be very depressing unless you had some hope of actually getting out of prison, right? All those things would do is make you feel worse about your situation and want something better. And you wouldn't really be able to experience it until you were outside, right? In a similar way, the law is good, but it cannot get you out of prison. It just makes you want to be out of prison. It holds up a mirror and it shows us our chains. And it shows us the bars and it shows us the cement. And it doesn't let us stay comfortable in the prison of our own sin. It makes us long for something better. But it would be very depressing if all we had was the law. Showing us and reminding us of our folly and our danger with no power to change the circumstances at all. But instead, we don't just have a law, we also have a promise that Jesus will rescue us from the prison of sin and death. And this is where Paul goes, verse 23. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. He says, captive, imprisoned, longing for something better, but trapped. And, for, and he's talking about the, the Israelites here. So let me, let, sometimes it may be hard for us to, He's not just talking about everybody. He's talking about Israel's history. They were longing for the fulfillment of God's promise, right? It's kind of like the the train whistle in that Johnny Cash song where he's stuck in prison, but he can hear the train in the distance, right? And he says, "I, I bet there's rich folks eating in fancy dining cars and they're all drinking coffee and smoking big cigars, right? You know that song? That's what it feels like being captive under the law. All the law does is make us want the Messiah more. And that was exactly the point of the law according to Paul, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. In other words, because they are now justified by faith in Christ, the Jews were no longer waiting for the Messiah, meaning they were no longer held captive under the law. So what does that mean for us? I'm going to give you three things. The first is this. I just want to make mention of what I believe to be the importance of church history. We are tempted to, to only see what God is doing in our moment, in our churches, in our families. It's very easy for us, because we live short lives, We forget that God has been at work in all generations before us, doing something, and that we have something to learn from that, because what Paul just did in this chapter is he weaves together 2,000 years of history to show us how God was working through it all. Jesus did the same thing with his disciples immediately after the resurrection. What did he spend those days doing before he ascended to heaven? He spent most of that time explaining to his disciples how God had been at work since creation in the lives of his people. And I think that many of the problems that we have today, when it comes to doctrine and Christian ethics, those things could be avoided if we considered what God has already done in the past. The the, the arguments we've already had that's already been decided, right? And so I just want you to kind of think for a moment about, okay, we do have a lot to learn from history, both in the Bible and church history since then. Number two, I think it is important for us to know that God doesn't move the goalposts. The Christian faith is not a bait and switch. But some Christians and some churches make it sound that way. They make it sound so simple, right? pray this prayer, believe in Jesus, but then once you're in, they start loading you up with other things that sound necessary for salvation. And that can be very confusing for people, right? Especially for new believers. And so we need to be clear that Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed through Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, so we have to be very clear about that, that that as my brother prayed, we're not adding anything to salvation. That is grace and faith, okay? God absolutely intends to sanctify us, to make us more like Jesus. But if we are united to Jesus by faith, if that's true, then we are already justified, we are no longer condemned, and that does not change. So that's number two. Finally, and this is the one that I I really want us to to think on and chew on as a church. We need to see the value of and the necessity of the law of God. Sometimes Christians with good intentions talk about the law as if it is a bad thing because they want us to focus more on grace. They're they're having the opposite fear of the Judaizers, right? The Judaizers were afraid that new Christians were going to ignore the law, right, completely. And there are a lot of well-intentioned Christians that that fall off the other side of the wagon, and they're afraid that we're going to forget God's love, His grace. And that is a false dilemma. Dilemma. And I want to try to convince you of that. Okay, so the law is good. And if the purpose of the law is what Paul says it is, and what he's saying is, we will not rightly or appropriately yearn for Christ without it. John Stott, as he says, not until the law has humbled us even to hell will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. So this is it. This is why it's so important that we actually, that we know as God's people, that we know God's law and we examine our lives with it daily. If we cut away the parts of God's law that offend us, we are making it less likely that we will yearn for Christ. You see that? The law is supposed to offend us daily. It's supposed to expose our sin. Sin is not just something that we wrestle with the day we become a Christian. It's something we're going to wrestle with until the day we die. And all along the way, the Spirit is using God's law to convict us and drive us to Jesus. But if we ignore the law or we take out the parts that we don't like because the culture says, right? So if we decide for ourselves that certain sins are okay, which we all do, because of the pressure of society or because of our own personal preferences, right? We think to ourselves, well, I don't do those big five things, right? So I'm good. There's a reason why Paul in his lists of sin always is careful to include some really heinous pagan things and also some really spiritual religious people type sins, right, next to each other because the law is supposed to offend all of us. But if we we cut certain parts away or if we ignore the law, then what we're effectively choosing is the comforts of our own prison cell over the promises of Jesus. That is practically what's happening in our lives. Because if God's plan is to save us from sin and death then maybe we should trust his word and the conviction of his spirit to tell us what's wrong with this world instead of listening to the world to tell us what's wrong with itself. Remember the, the tension that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon? Keep the law you're not able. Keep the law you're not able. Okay? The greater that tension in your life, the more you will feel your need of grace. The more you will need Jesus, and that's the point. But if we dull our sensitivity to sin, if we soften our understanding of sin, if we start to believe that no one really deserves the condemnation of a holy God, then we won't feel a need for Jesus at all. And there's really no point to Christianity. Jesus died on a cross. He suffered the actual wrath of God for sin. And that tells us that sin is a much bigger problem in God's eyes than it is in our eyes. And that's why Christians keep going back to the cross is because it forces us to remember how much we need the grace of God because it resolves that tension between God's law and our inability to keep it, between God's holiness and His love. Amen. And so, as we come to the table, this is also meant to be a visible picture, a physical reminder of exactly that. The place where the wrath of God met the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In His body and His blood that was shed on our behalf, in our place, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God, right? And so when we do this once a month as a church, we are enacting that union with Christ. We are enacting that, that replacement, that, that exchange. And we don't come to this table because we've earned it. we've we've been invited to receive it in faith, as we talked about last Sunday with empty hands, right? In just a moment, I'll pray, and we'll do what we call the words of institution, and um, the way we're gonna take communion this morning is everyone will come down the center aisle and get both of the elements and go back to your seats, and then we'll all take it together at the end. just want to remind you that uh, you don't have to be a member of our church to take the Lord's Supper, but you should be a member in good standing of some church that preaches the gospel. Um, young children who haven't yet professed their faith can come and, and watch with their parents, but they don't take yet because we want them to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ themselves and profess that faith, okay?